Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. As US President Donald Trump meets up with his fellow NATO leaders in London this week, I'll be discussing the crisis afflicting the 70-year-old transatlantic military alliance with our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. And London is where we begin this week, but with another story. The British election is just over a week away now, and Dennis Staunton, our London editor, is on the line to discuss the latest developments. Dennis, nine days from polling day as we speak, does it look more likely every day that Boris Johnson will secure a commanding House of Commons majority? I don't think it looks more likely every day because if you actually look at the, the way the polls are going, what you see is a, is a narrowing. And what's been happening is that the Conservative Party uh, went up so there are, most polls put them above 40% in the polls. And uh, and that's mainly because they consolidated a lot of Leave voters around them by uh, driving down the support for the Brexit party. And meanwhile, what you had was the, the Remain vote split between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. What's happened over the last couple of weeks is that the Liberal Democrat vote has gone down. And there's a big uh, move from them over to Labour, so that at the beginning of the campaign, the Remain vote was more or less evenly, evenly divided between the uh, uh, the Liberal Democrats and Labour. And now Labour has uh, has twice as many uh, of those voters as uh, as the Liberal Democrats have. So still now you see a gap of uh, maybe 9, maybe 10, maybe 11% in the polls between the Conservatives and Labour. But that gap is narrowing. And most conservative strategists think that once they get to about 7% or 6%, if they're below that in terms of their lead over Labour, that then uh, they can't really be sure of getting a majority. Having said that, there is a mood around which would suggest that uh, things could go quite well for the Conservatives. Because, again, if you think back to the beginning of the campaign, what we were expecting was, what we in fact we thought that we knew was, that uh, the Conservatives were going to lose a lot of their seats in Scotland. They were going to lose quite a lot of seats to the Liberal Democrats down in the London and the South East. And then what they were going to have to do was to try to make up all of those, plus the, the deficit that they started out with, uh, by getting formerly Labour seats uh, in the Midlands and the north of England. Now, what appears to be happening is that the Conservative vote is holding up in Scotland. And so what they're now talking about is they've got 13 seats right now and they think that they could hold on to all but maybe two or three of those. And meanwhile, down in the South, because the uh, Liberal Democrat vote has been receding and also the anti-Conservative vote remains split between Labour and the Liberal Democrats, uh, the Conservatives are confident of holding on to almost everything down here. So, for example, in London, there's really only one or two that they're worried about. They think they might lose Richmond, uh, currently held by Zach Goldsmith. But they also think they'll pick up one or two seats. So, for example, they think they'll pick up Kensington from Labour. And right now, the Conservatives believe that they're not going to lose any seats to Labour anywhere. So they think it's really just a question of how many they can pick up in this so-called red wall of formerly Labour seats. And if you look at a lot of the focus groups uh, that have been done up there of people who voted uh, Leave in 2016 and voted Labour in 2017, uh, there was a very good one on Channel 4 News last night, you'll see an awful lot of those people saying that they actually quite like Boris Johnson, they don't like Jeremy Jeremy Corbyn, and they're ready to go for the Conservatives now. So uh, so I suppose what I'm saying is that uh, if you simply look at the polls, 
you can see how on the present trajectory you could get to the point where a hung parliament is likely. But at the same time, the Conservatives are quite confident that the votes that they're picking up are in the right places and the, and the places where there's a threat are are places that are not going to be so dangerous to them. But that's where we stand nine days out. And as you know, the polls have been wrong in the past. And anecdotal evidence is never that reliable. So um, so, so I, I think that, you know, that, that the Conservatives are more confident than any of the other parties. The Liberal Democrats are feeling despondent. And Labour still think they've got a chance to deprive Boris Johnson of his majority. And if the Conservatives can hold their current lead of, of around you know ten percent or so, Dennis, what would that translate into in terms of seats? Well, it could be anything from a majority of say uh, you know ten or twenty, right up to uh, some something above fifty. Uh, this big uh, YouGov MRP poll, this poll of a hundred thousand people last week, that projected a Conservative majority of uh, sixty-eight. Seats, but uh, you know the the polls have been narrowing since then, and also just the methodology in that poll doesn't take account of individual seats and various idiosyncrasies there. So I think you'd expect that the majority on the, those projections would be smaller than sixty eight. So you know, so so I think that if you know looking at the polls as they are now, the Conservatives could get a majority of between anything between twenty and fifty seats. Uh, particularly if they are uh, able to hold firm in Scotland and to limit their losses to the Liberal Democrats down in this part of the country. Now, the news in Britain, Dennis, since last Friday has been dominated uh, by the the terror attack in London in in which two young people and the attacker were killed. Um, What impact, if any, has that attack had on the election debate? It's it hasn't. It's not really quite clear what the lasting impact is. Uh, one of the things that happened was that uh, Boris Johnson, uh, and part of the Conservative playbook for uh, this election, seems to be that whatever uh, Theresa May did in 2017, do the opposite. And so, after uh, the uh, terrorist attacks during the 2017 general election, Theresa May uh, said very little and allowed Jeremy Corbyn to take the initiative. And so he was able to turn the uh, debate into one about uh, cuts to police numbers. So what Boris Johnson did was that he immediately went out with um, a promise to, uh, to to introduce tougher sentences for people involved in terrorism and to change the rules which allow a lot of people to get out halfway through finishing their sentences. And so he also uh, sought to blame the previous Labour government, the one that went out of power in 2010, for uh, for the fact that the uh, that uh, that the terrorist attacker, who was a convicted terrorist, that he was had been allowed out of prison before his sentence was finished. And so this is the, uh, Johnson's, uh, you know constant tactic, really, of not taking responsibility for anything that the Conservative government did until he actually became Prime Minister. Now, that seemed to backfire on him a bit because uh, the father of one of the victims, of Jack Merritt, his father, Dave, uh, was very uh, distressed by the fact that uh, his son's death was being used to make these arguments because Jack Merritt was involved in uh, programmes to rehabilitate prisoners. He was a great believer in rehabilitative uh, justice and in reforming the justice system and the penal system. 
and and in fact, Dennis, sorry to cut in, but there, there, it was there was an awkward moment, if you like, for Boris Johnson um, um, arising from that when he was asked asked a question about it by a, a journalist from the Guardian. Prime Minister Jack okay. Merritt's father, David Merritt, has said your response to the London Bridge attack has been beyond disgusting. And I want to read his statement. He said, "We know Jack would not want this terrible, isolated incident to be used as a pretext by the government for introducing even more draconian sentences on prisoners." or for detaining people in prison for longer than necessary. But that's exactly what you're doing, isn't it? Well, of course, I feel, as everybody does, a huge amount of sympathy for the loss of uh, uh, Jack Merritt's family and, uh, indeed, for uh, all, the, all the relatives of, of uh, Jack and, and Saskia who, who, per- who perished at London Bridge. But uh, be it no doubt, I've campaigned against uh, early release and against short sentences for, for many years. It was in my manifesto in 2012 when I was, I was mayor of London. Uh, it's, it, I said it in, in August, and uh, it's in the Queen's speech. In fact, there's a bill we've got ready to go in the Queen's speech to uh, stop automatic early release for serious and violent offenders. And I do think that, unfortunately, the, the, that is the problem that we face. We have- As I was saying, Dennis, that was possibly an awkward moment for Boris Johnson, but he... Were you making the point, I mean, this controversy, if you like, it hasn't really done him any damage, has it? I think not necessarily. I mean, it remains to be seen. There's always a bit of a lag where the polls are concerned. But the, you know, it is an essential fact that voters tend to be quite keen on tough sentences and tough policies about crime. The voters tend to be uh, rather more hardline than the politicians on issues of crime and law and order. And so uh, they don't tend to punish politicians for saying that sentencing ought to be tougher. And when Jeremy Corbyn made the point that um, you know, that actually uh, you shouldn't automatically keep everybody in prison until such time as their sentence was finished, that it really depended on the individual case and you should see how they uh, behaved in prison. Uh, this sort of didn't seem to go down particularly well. It's you know it's the kind of thing that you know that a lot of voters view as being weak rather than thoughtful, and so I think that Boris Johnson won't really mind the uh, you know the fallout from the uh, you know from the thing. But I'm not sure that he actually has succeeded in turning it his, to his political advantage. And I think that actually, if you look at uh, the polls, that, you know that are the most recent opinion polls that have come out, say over the weekend, which wouldn't really take that into account. But what they do take into account is the fact that we've just, you know, last week was probably the worst week Labour could have had in the campaign. It was the week that uh, the chief rabbi, uh, you know, intervened in the election to uh, to, to blame Jeremy Corbyn for anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And uh, and that Corbyn had a disastrous interview with uh, Andrew Neil. So that Corbyn was able to uh, actually improve not only his party's ratings, but his own personal ratings in uh, you know in that context and i think that something like what happened in uh, over the you know, on friday in london bridge the terror attack i'm not sure it's going to do uh, boris johnson uh, a huge amount of good but it probably hasn't done him too much harm in his reaction to it either it's been a feature of this campaign isn't it dennis or at least it seems to me that the conservatives in particular um they don't really care about what controversies they create or even or, or controversies they embrace. But as long as they're in the news, um, they seem to win. Do you think that's a fair observation? I'm thinking, for example, of the, the row at Channel 4. We discussed it last week over the debate where Boris Johnson didn't turn up for a debate on climate change and, and Michael Gove went instead. And then 
he wasn't allowed to take part. And the Conservatives complained to Ofcom and that was the news headline the next day, not the debate itself. Yes, I think these kind of process stories, uh, they benefit uh, the Conservatives because what it means is that you can't move the election uh, and the the debate onto other issues because really what, uh, what the Conservatives want is for the election to be about Brexit and about Jeremy Corbyn and if you can't have it being about either of those things, then it's best to have a day of it being about nothing. And whereas what the uh, you know, what the opposition parties need, and particularly Labour needs, is for the election to be moved off those issues and for every day to be talking about something like the health service, child poverty, uh, you know, transport, you know, something that uh, that affects people where the government has failed uh, or is perceived to have failed, and uh, you know, and and that matters, uh, you know, you know, that moves beyond the whole divide of Brexit and also where the personality of Jeremy Corbyn doesn't intrude too much. <clears throat> so I think that uh, you know, by, uh, by re- tying everybody up in knots over whether uh, Boris Johnson should have turned up to the debate or whether he ought to agree to be interviewed by Andrew Neil or all of these things, I think that although it's not interesting to the public, it, uh, it probably does suit the uh, Conservatives' purposes. I mean, you mentioned in your election diary on, on, on irishtimes.com today a, a, a very damning dispatches programme on Channel 4 last night about the state of child poverty in Britain, which really, you know, um, that the, the kind of facts that emerge from that should be the death knell really for any government going into an election, but it seems to have had no impact at all. Yeah, I think, though, that we probably have to be a little careful about that because one of the things, I mean, uh, what I've noticed when you, know, when you talk to candidates, and particularly if you talk to Labour candidates and if you go out on the canvas, that while quite a lot of people are talking about things like Brexit or about the fact they don't like uh, Jeremy Corbyn or, or whatever they think of Boris Johnson, quite a lot of people are talking about issues like poverty. Uh, there are quite a lot of people who are working, but they're, uh, they're poor and they're using food banks and they uh, depend on various government benefits to keep going. And so I think that it's, uh, you know, it's possibly more of an issue, uh, despite the fact that the government doesn't really want to talk about it, for certain people. And in a way, if uh, some of these people who uh, have reservations about Labour or its leadership if they actually do end up voting for Labour on the day, it will really be because of things like this and because of the fact that uh, there is a perception uh, among great numbers of people in Britain that the Conservative Party really doesn't care enough about people who are poor and people who are in need. So what do you think the Labour Party can do or might try to do in the final week of the campaign to to try to close that gap and and bring it, you know, bring the Conservatives within, you know, hung Parliament territory at least? Well, the Labour Party has got one big advantage over the Conservatives, and that is in terms of organisation, just because it has more members. It's got a lot of uh, members, uh, half a million people. Most of them really are not active or don't get involved, but it means they've got a pool of people to draw on in terms of activism. They also have organisations like Momentum, and they've got uh, access to the trade union infrastructure. So that in terms of reaching people, can Canvassing and also getting out the vote, they do have some advantages over the Conservatives. And they particularly have an advantage where younger voters are concerned. And if they can somehow get those younger voters 
to actually show up in numbers which match the uh, the turnout figures for older voters, then Labour will do very well in the election, and certainly they could then cost uh, you know cost Boris Johnson his majority. In terms of issues, obviously Donald Trump's visit is uh, you know is something that they would hope would help because you know he might just say something uh, that's uh, unhelpful to Boris Johnson, especially if he tries to be helpful to Boris Johnson. That'd be the best of all possible worlds as far as Labour is concerned, and then there. There is a debate, a head-to-head debate between Corbyn and Johnson on Friday evening, and they will hope that uh, Corbyn gets the better of that of that night. And really, what they're what they're hoping is that the worst is is past as far as they're concerned. And if they can, uh, you know, if they can move the focus away from Jeremy Corbyn's leadership qualities and try to get voters to concentrate on some of the Labour policies that are popular. Then I think they, uh, you know, they do have a chance to to narrow that gap enough, probably not to um, to win a majority, but certainly they they do they do still have a, a decent chance of depriving Johnson of his majority. And indeed, mention of Donald Trump, and I'll be talking to Suzanne Lynch in a moment about Trump's visit to London. But you you also addressed that in your in your diary today, Dennis. Um, I mean, is it is it the case that Johnson or his people have actually made it clear to Trump he doesn't want his endorsement, and and they've also avoided a, a bilateral meeting while he's here, isn't that right, or while he's in London? They've certainly there won't be a sort of a bilateral press conference, which there might have been otherwise. I'm sure they will at some stage, although there is no bilateral meeting scheduled. I'm sure they will at some stage get some time together, and but but the message has got across to Trump that uh, you know he shouldn't get involved in the election. It wouldn't actually help Johnson, and so he tried to keep to that line today uh, when he gave a, sort of an impromptu press conference this morning and he said that he didn't want to get involved but he thought that Boris was good, doing a really good job and uh, and then on the NHS he said um, he was asked about all these you know this idea of the NHS be on the table uh, in a trade deal and he said well you know I've no interest in it you know if you handed it to me on a silver platter I wouldn't want it but of course it's not exactly as if people think he's going to actually sort of literally buy the NHS, uh, but he hasn't yet faced questions about the the real issue, which would be about drug pricing and the pharmaceutical companies in America who complain, and indeed Trump has complained about the fact that uh, you know foreign freeloaders are getting cheaper drugs from American companies uh, than American consumers and hospitals have to pay, and that's because they've got sort of big organisations like the National Health Service that can buy and are monopoly purchasers. And that is something that probably will be actually on the menu in any trade deal, or at least something that the US would like to have on the menu. And it's also a live political issue in the United States right now. So I think there is a decent chance that sometime over the next 24 hours or so, somebody will ask him a question like that, and he will also answer it. Okay, well, Dennis, we look forward to that. No doubt we'll talk next week, uh, two days from polling day. But for now, thank you. Thanks again to Dennis Staunton in London. And we're staying with London and Donald Trump, whom we were discussing just now, but going to Washington to speak to our correspondent there, Suzanne Lynch. Uh, Suzanne, the gathering of NATO leaders in London today, Tuesday and tomorrow, it's supposed to be a 70th birthday celebration for the Transatlantic Military Alliance. There's not much of a party atmosphere, though, is there? Yeah, I think uh, expectations are quite low for this summit. Uh, interestingly enough, it's it's not technically a summit. It's, it's, it's a more cur- curtailed meeting. Um, it's been billed as a gathering, as a kind of anniversary celebration of the alliance. It's it's marking its 70th anniversary uh, this year. Um, and in that sense, I think that uh, all participants are trying to keep this as short as possible and to avoid 
some pitfalls. Donald Trump, uh, given his unpredictable behavior, I think people are expecting um, some kind of fireworks for him, but are trying to keep that to a minimum. Uh, also, it's worth noting, this was scheduled two years ago by Theresa May, uh, and it was seen very much as an attempt by Britain to show its post-Brexit credentials, its commitment to international alliances despite leaving the European Union. Um, but of course, it's happening, as Dennis was speaking about there, just as uh, Britain prepares to go to the polls. So that's also putting a, a different spin on things this week. Now, Trump, we'll all remember, he caused no end of trouble when the leaders last met in Brussels in July last year. He turned up late and, and then he castigated European member states for not spending enough on defence. If anything, he seems determined to be even more of a nuisance and even less diplomatic this time. Yes, he took umbrage in particular at Germany, was strongly critical of Angela Merkel, who, of course, had such a strong relationship with Obama. A lot of people spoke about the real uh, connection between Europe and America going through Berlin during the Obama years when Merkel and Obama were really seen as the leaders of the free world. Uh, since Donald Trump has come into office, he show, so he's shown no real interest in Angela Merkel and has uh, repeatedly uh, criticised her. Um, now, when he was leaving Washington on Monday, he uh, spoke to reporters as he left the White House with his wife Melania. And uh, he described other NATO members as delinquent. And he talked about how it hasn't been a fair situation for the US because uh, we pay far too much, he said, compared to other uh, other countries. So we expect that is going to come up as a theme in these uh, in these meetings over the next few days. Um, of course, it does need to be said that Donald Trump's complaint about the other members of NATO not paying their fair share, it, there's nothing new in that. Uh, Barack Obama was one of many US presidents who has really consistently criticised Europe for not ponying up more money for this organisation. But I suppose what's different with Donald Trump is he is a president, kind of the first modern US president, who has rejected the whole idea of international alliances, of multilateralism. He obviously campaigned, was elected on a much more nativist, uh, protectionist agenda. Uh, so his whole attitude towards NATO is so much more uh, disparaging than the presidents that have gone before. And in fairness to uh, Trump, Suzanne, maybe those aren't words we hear in this podcast very much or that I say very much, but in fairness to him, um, there was a reaction from the European member states to his criticism last year of them not spending enough on defence. And, and they are now spending more. And I think the White House is able to portray that as some kind of, you know, uh, diplomatic victory for him, aren't they? Yeah, this, this has been an interesting theme over the last few days that will probably no doubt be raised by Trump in London. And that is the idea that Europe has changed its ways. And Trump actually said while he was leaving Washington on Monday that um, Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, told him that it was actually his impact, his effect, uh, that had caused more uh, European countries to contribute more to the alliance. So you can kind of see that scenario of Stoltenberg, like a lot of leaders trying to butter Trump up, as it were. Um, so Trump said that himself. And then uh, a few days before the meeting, there were senior administration officials here at the White House briefing journalists like myself, and they, they made the point that there actually has been progress, and they explicitly linked this to Donald Trump. They said that there's been tremendous progress. They've talked about the increase in new spending by countries since Mr. Trump has took office. And this official said, I think it is due to the president's diplomatic work. So we were very much expecting Donald Trump to take the credit for this. It does need to be said, though, um, on the eve of the summit, the, uh, the NATO allies indicated that they were increasing uh, contributions to the NATO's operating budget. This is more the a kind of a smaller budget that runs its headquarters, its staff, other of those day-to-day -day expenses. It's usually a $2.5 billion operating budget. 
And um, Stoltenberg announced uh, late last week that European members, some European members and Canada and Turkey will pay more. And as a result, the US contribution to this will fall to 16% in line with Germany's level. Now, that is a good thing for America. Donald Trump is likely to seize on that. But that is separate to what NATO member countries pay individually for defence. And that's what people really are talking about when they talk about spending on defence. The target is that 2% of GDP per country should be spent on military defence. And only a handful of countries uh, of the 29 members spend this. Uh, We think now it's up to about nine. So that is still an issue uh, for countries. So it will be interesting to see if Donald Trump continues pressing that point, as well as claiming victory on the issue of the increased spending by European partners on the operating budget. Now, even aside, Suzanne, from the issue about defence spending and so on that you've just talked about, the build-up to this this meeting has been fraught. We had comments from Emmanuel Macron, the French president, in an interview with The Economist, in which he expressed frustration over Turkey's incursion into Syria, which was done without consulting any other member state except the US. Macron suggested NATO was brain-dead. Turkey hit back in recent days and said it's it's Macron that's brain dead. And and Trump, after landing in London, he's made further comments and I think he's kind of made it clear which side he's on in, in, in that row. It's a tough statement, though, when you make a statement like that. That is a very, uh, very, very nasty statement to essentially 28, including them, 28 countries. I think that, uh, you know, you have a very high unemployment rate in France. France is not doing well economically at all. Uh, they're starting to tax other people's products, so therefore we go and tax them. It's just taking place right now on technology, and we're doing their wines and everything else. And it's uh, it's a very tough statement to make when you have such difficulty in in France. You look at what's happened with the yellow vests, or you look at what's going on during certain parts of their season. They've had a very rough year. And you just can't go around making statements like that about NATO. It's very disrespectful. Yeah, I mean, this is quite an extraordinary intervention by Donald Trump within hours uh, of uh, the first day. He was meeting Stoltenberg on Tuesday morning and really hit out at Macron, calling him very disrespectful um, and talked about his recent comments that were given in the interview with The Economist as very insulting and really talking about how great NATO was. NATO serves a great purpose Um, And, you know, this is hugely ironic coming from Donald Trump, who previously described NATO as obsolete. So a real turn of events here with Trump, who seems to be taking a new attitude, a kind of Damascus-like conversion uh, about the merits of NATO. This, again, is a far cry from the relationship between Macron and Trump that we saw, you know, 18 months ago. I was at at myself here at the White House when the Trumps held a very, very lavish state uh, visit and event for, uh, for Macron and his wife. That was back in April 2018. There was lots of talk about a bromance, about this being the new transatlantic relationship. That seems to now be under serious pressure. Um, Trump is due to meet Macron uh, on Tuesday afternoon for a bilateral meeting. I think it's important to note, not only uh, playing on events here are Macron's comments about NATO being brain dead. There's also the very specific issue about trade tariffs. Just uh, on Monday evening, the Trump administration announced that it's considering imposing 100% tariffs on French imports, including champagne, um, in retaliation for France's digital tax that was introduced on tech companies. Now, America is arguing that US companies are being unfairly targeted uh, by this tax, which is kind of focused on companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook, etc. So there's a real escalation of trade tensions here. That is separate to other uh, trade tariffs that were introduced on EU exports to do with the Airbus, Boeing, People might remember that Irish products were hit by that, Baileys and Kerrygold, but also a lot of French products. So I think this is a real issue 
that's now really weighing on the global economy, this escalating trade war between the United States and particularly France, the EU generally, but particularly France. So I'd expect that a lot of the discussion between Macron and Trump will focus on this in some way out of this, you know, very, very serious now trade war. And the strange thing, Suzanne, is, isn't it, that, that the, the personal chemistry between Trump and Macron has been good whenever they've met in the same room. So it could be that that bilateral meeting will transform the atmosphere. Exactly. And I mean, this was tr- Trump talking tough. He's a provocateur. Uh, you know, his comments there um, were designed uh, to, to get attention. And I think uh, it's about Trump setting up a certain bar before he goes into that meeting. So you're right. This could get worked out in that meeting between the two. I mean, the other part of this, of course, are Macron's genuine concerns about the future of NATO and in particular the role of Turkey. And this is the other very interesting dynamic that's going to play out in London this week. Erdogan, fresh from his victory in northern Syria, is arriving in London and um, a hugely provocative statement uh, as he left Ankara. He said that he's expecting the other NATO allies uh, to denounce uh, the Kurdish rebels in in northern Syria uh, as terrorists. They, of course, fought alongside the U.S., in the fight against ISIS in that area of Syria. Now, the U.S. Defense Secretary has already said this morning on Tuesday that, you know, that's not going to happen, that other countries do not share this view of the group of being a terrorist organization. But Erdogan actually threatened to block a defense plan for the Baltic nations if the other allies did not uh, back him on this. Now, that is a very, very interesting and worrying development for NATO strategically, this kind of uh, closer relationship between Ankara and Moscow that we've seen Turkey has also uh, bought uh, defence missile uh, systems from Russia, which has annoyed his NATO allies. And then, of course, we saw this kind of peace agreement signed by a broker, if you like, between Putin and Erdogan in northern Syria. So this cozying up um, of of Turkey to Russia is something that I think is alarming allies. Of course, Trump has an interesting role to play here. He has also said uh, this week that how great Erdogan is, how he's a good relationship with him, etc., but I expect that's going to be a major fault line in the meetings uh, this week in London. There's a certain amount of political theatre about this, Suzanne, isn't there, in that, that um, you know, you have these kind of bellicose leaders going around and essentially slagging each other off in public. But at the heart of all this, is there kind of a, a are there mutual suspicions? On, on one side, you mentioned Trump's uh, worriness about multilateralism. You'd almost think he'd nearly take the US out of the United Nations if he, if he could. Mm. And on the other side, isn't there a suspicion on, on, on the US side and indeed among some European states that France isn't really fully committed to NATO, that, that it really is more interested in developing a sort of European defence model? Yes. And of course, this is very interesting, I think, for countries like Ireland and the EU. Consistently in the European Union, there has been a debate about how much pooled sovereignty there should be in defence, you know, the notion of a, of a European army. I mean, my personal view here is that you know, we may dismiss this, but I think the messages from the big capitals from Berlin and Paris is that particularly as Britain leaves the European Union, uh, that there's going to be a greater call for more military defence capabilities at an EU level. I think that's the way it's going. Um, and that is because Britain, for different reasons, never liked the idea of an EU defence system. Uh, it preferred uh, for that to be the issue for NATO, not the EU. But now that Britain is gone, I think that's removing a big barrier to greater defence and military integration in the European Union. So that's, on another level, that's very worrying for countries like Ireland, I think six countries in the EU that are not members of NATO, even though even the coverage this week, constantly NATO and the European Union are kind of used interchangeably. And of course, that's not the case, particularly for countries like Ireland. Um, But yes, the whole issue of um, mutual suspicion and kind of internal divisions within NATO is a real one. And I think it's because, in one sense, NATO does have a kind of you know, uh, a strategic 
challenge at the moment. What is NATO for? It was founded 70 years ago in the in the ashes of World War II. It's very much seen as a bulwark against Soviet aggression. Um, that, you know, it's not, that, that isn't, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, essentially, you know, that has not been its only reason for being. And I think there's a lot of debates now about what NATO should do. We may hear the US, for example, talk about China, talk about the threats of, you know, cyber warfare, of the threats of 5G. The Americans are not happy that countries, again, including Ireland, um, are dealing with Huawei and a lot of Chinese uh, tech companies. So uh, I think we're going to see elements of that. And then the Turkish um, Turkish connections now with Russia, I think, complicate things too. Turkey has also been always been an interesting member of NATO. It's been a very, very important member of NATO, just geographically where it's situated. And if Turkey is beginning to kind of flirt with Moscow, I think that's a real worry for the NATO allies. Well, no doubt, Suzanne, you'll be watching that closely for us this week. But for now, we'll leave it there. And that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.